This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, why don't we go to God in prayer? Dear Father, as we come before you today, we just pray that you help us to understand this very long passage about the trials of Paul and to understand what it is to keep pressing on in Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. An American pastor once shared about a lady in his congregation. Uh, she had an abusive husband, an alcoholic husband. Her children were no good. She had a very difficult life. But yet every week she came to church on a Sunday and she spoke to the pastor and said, you know, it's because of the truths that you teach me every week that helps me to persevere as a Christian. And she said to the pastor, keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I think the Christian life is hard. It's hard, especially as a Christian. It's hard generally in life. But I suppose when we come to God's Word, we are given the motivations, uh, the context, the truths by which we persevere and keep going on week after week after week. And today's passage speaks of those truths. Because Paul actually has been going on a pretty good streak. So over the last few weeks, we've been seeing that he's been doing good ministry. Uh, if you look up on the slide, all right, he first did his first missionary journey, and then that went pretty well. And then he had a second missionary journey, which went further into Europe, and another missionary journey again, which expanded his work. But here in the parts of uh, the book of Acts that we're looking at, he finds himself in one of the most challenging and testing times of his uh, life, where he's in prison, he's facing false charges, there are assassination squads out to get him, he has to face corrupt Roman officials, he doesn't know when or if he will ever be released. So how does Paul persevere? What are the truths that he holds on to in order to keep going on as a Christian, to keep persevering? Well, in the first part that we look at in chapter 24, we see that the Jews come before the, the judge and basically put a few charges against Paul. So in first, uh, verse 1 of chapter 24, five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix, who was the governor. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you are kind enough to, brief, to hear us briefly. We have this found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring out riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. So here are the two main charges against Paul. One, that he's a troublemaker, right? that he creates riots wherever he goes. And the second charge is that he desecrated the temple. That means he was in the temple and he wasn't meant to be there. But these are all lies, lies, lies. Because as we look over the last few weeks, we saw that it wasn't Paul who was creating the riots, 
but rather it was the Jews in the cities that he went to who started rioting when many of the Jews became Christians. So if you look on the map, if you remember when Paul, uh, you got to click, right, was up there in Berea and Thessalonica, the Jews rioted. It wasn't Paul who started the riot, but the Jews who rioted, and then Paul then fleed south, and then even in the next city in Corinth, again the Jews rioted, and again Paul was the victim of the rioters. But also as we look for, forward in, more forward in the, this passage, chapter 24, Paul himself says that when he went to the temple, he wasn't actually doing anything wrong. You see, look at what it says there in um, verse 11. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to, to riot, nor to worship. And my accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. So Paul is not a rioter. Paul is not guilty of rioting. Paul is not guilty of desecrating the temple. Paul is not guilty of any of the things that he's been accused of. But here is where Paul then changes the defense into an evangelistic, uh, I guess, speech. Because instead of saying that he is guilty, he accuses the Jews of being guilty. And they are guilty, not just before men and the court or the governor Felix, but they are guilty before God himself. Because here, in verse 14 to 26, he says, However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors, the Jews, as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there is, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before men. And in verse 20 he says, Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it is this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am trial before you today. Now here is the heart of what is the truth for Paul that helps Paul keep persevering in his life, in his ministry, as he is in jail. The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the wicked. And that's why verse 16 is so important, right? If you look up here on this slide, because he says, because of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, so, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men. This is the reason why Paul is willing to stand before the court. This is why Paul continues to stand before the court. This is why Paul continues to preach the gospel and to keep going on. Because he believes in the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the righteous, the resurrection of the wicked.
And because he believes in that resurrection, he will continue to keep a clean conscience before God and men. Now what that means is that it doesn't matter if the world hates you, it doesn't matter if the world opposes you, it doesn't matter if the world is all against you, if you know the resurrection of the dead, of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, then there is something greater than this world and that is why we have to have a clean conscience before God always. That's what Paul says. And that means that the money in our bank, the property that we're interested in, the cars that we drive, the things that we have, it's all irrelevant. Because in Paul's eyes, the truth that keeps us in Christ is not about whether we are having a good time today, whether our boss likes us, or whether we did well in our exam, but it's because there will be a resurrection and on that day God will judge the righteous and the dead. And so we must always keep a clean conscience before God. Now is that true for you? Can you say what Paul said? So I thought it would be good right, to have a bit of interactive activity. So I thought what would be good is, uh, next slide, that we actually read this sentence together because this is the heart of what Paul asserts, right? And if we can read this sentence together and believe in our hearts, then this is what's going to encourage us to keep persevering in Christ, to keep going on for another week or another year or another uh, decade. Right? So let's read it together. I believe everything that agrees to the law that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and men. Now, if you really believe that in your heart, as Paul did, then you will be able to keep persevering. Because it doesn't matter what problems you have today, there is a greater eternal reality, the resurrection of the dead which keeps us going because in the way that we live today before God, we have implications for eternity. So after this first section, you can see obviously there are many chapters, right? 24, 25, 26. So we're not going to look at everything because you know, if not, we'll be here all day. But in the first section, Paul makes it very clear and he nails his colors to the mask. He says, look, this is what I'm in trial for. This is what I'm standing for. The resurrection of the dead. Now, Felix here is not able to agree with the Jews in their charges. But, he's not a very nice man, right? Because he doesn't release Paul. So, let's move on to the next section in verse 22 to 27. And this is actually quite an interesting section because we get to hear and to learn a lot more about this Felix character. So, in verse 22, it says, Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way adjourn the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, our governor Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Now, here we see that even though Paul was innocent and Felix knew that, he didn't release Paul, but instead he wanted to meet up with Paul. In fact, some of the other alternate versions of uh, this passage actually says it was his wife, Drusilla, who wanted to hear from Paul. Now, Felix himself, even though in chapter 24 we read the Jews saying how he, you know, oh, Felix, you are so great, you are such a great ruler, we have so much peace before you, who was actually a very, very bad governor. Um, some historians actually describe him as one of the worst Roman officials. He was wicked, he was cruel, and he was oppressive. And just to give you an idea of what he was like, you can actually go up to Wikipedia and Google him, and I'm not doing it now, but he actually uh, he took advantage of a civil war between uh, the Jews and the Syrians and murdered people in order to enrich himself. So, you know, the governor, governor is meant to look after his people, but actually he, he took advantage of his people to enrich himself. But not only was he wicked and oppressive and cruel, he was also a very lustful and immoral man. So Drusilla was actually meant to marry someone else, but he was attracted to Drusilla and he seduced Drusilla and stole Drusilla from her rightful husband to be his third wife. So here he is, this wicked, cruel, immoral and lustful man calls Paul together with his third wife and they have a conversation. Now I don't know about you, but if I was Paul, I might be very careful about what I say. You know, maybe I talk about faith in Jesus Christ. Or, you know, that's about it at the maximum. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes on to speak about a lot more than just faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, why does Paul do this? Well, remember what we read before earlier that you all read together? Because of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So always, I keep a clean conscience before God and men. So he's not going to make an exception here for Felix. He's going, to, he's going to hit him with the full gospel. And he talks to him about righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? It could be that uh, Paul talked to Felix about godliness, righteous living. You know, now that you're a Christian, if you accept Jesus Christ... You will live righteously, the right way before God. But more probably, and I think most commentators agree with this, is that he's talking about righteousness which comes from faith in Jesus Christ. What is theologically known as imputed righteousness. The righteousness which is credited to you because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. Righteousness which is counted in your ledger because Jesus has given you righteousness. Not because you're a good person or you earned it. Now the reason why we, we say that is because it makes the most sense of chapter 24, verse 15, right? Because remember he said, I believe in the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. 
But we know that there are no righteous people in this world. There are no good people. There's no perfectly uh, righteous person. But this righteousness is because God has given righteousness or imputed righteousness or credited righteousness to someone because Jesus Christ has died for them. And in faith, they have appropriated the righteousness that God offers. But Paul doesn't end there. He speaks about self-control. The self-control that he speaks about comes as a result of the acceptance of Jesus Christ in faith, of the acceptance of grace that comes from God. So in Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say, No to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope. So here Paul is giving uh, Governor Felix almost like a full exposition of what it means, faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes by grace, self-control which comes after you have received the grace of God. And then last of all, he talks about the judgment to come. Now again, as we've been going through the book of Acts, this is a consistent theme that each of the sermons that the apostles give always end with. Right, so Apostle Peter, when he was in Caesarea, next slide, this was when he first preached to the Gentiles, he said that he has commanded us, God has commanded us to preach to the people and testify that Jesus is the one whom God has appointed as judge and the living of the dead. And then Paul, when he went to Athens, he says, that in verse 31, he has set a day when God will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has proof, given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul here is not doing anything different than what any of the other apostles have been doing. And he's not going to do anything different just because sitting in front of him is the most powerful civil servant of his day, Governor Felix, with his third wife. It doesn't matter that he's wicked doesn't matter that he's immoral. doesn't matter that he is a cruel man. And how does Felix, the governor, react? He's afraid. Now, isn't that an irony? Because actually Paul, the prisoner, should be the one who's afraid. Because after all, Governor Felix has the power of life and death over him. And don't forget, the last time someone did something like this, John the Baptist, what happened? He got his head cut off, right? So who should be afraid? It should be Paul. But instead, Felix was the one who was afraid. When he heard about the judgment to come, he said, okay, that's enough. I'll call for you when I feel like it. I don't want to talk anymore. So here it was that Paul showed that it's not enough just to persevere in Christ. Because of the resurrection of the dead, to keep a clear conscience before God, you also have to preach faithfully. Because one day we will all stand before God at that resurrection and we will have to give an account of the gospel that we share. I read somewhere last week that Christians are to be like an electrical wire. 
Because the role of an electrical wire basically is to transmit electricity from one point to the other point with the least resistance. I mean, if you had an electrical wire and it was all kind of made of rubber, then it would block the flow of electricity and you wouldn't get the electricity from the power point, uh, sorry, from the power point of the wall to your lamp, right? That would be useless. In the same way, we as Christians are to be an electrical point, but instead of transmitting electricity, we are God's instrument to transmit the gospel to other people. And we are not to distort the electricity or the gospel going through us. We're not to block it. We're not to resist it, but we are to just let it flow through us to other people. And that's what Paul is doing, and that's what we should be doing too, because as we persevere and as we preach the gospel to people, then we can stand before God with a clear conscience. Now often, as we look at this passage, it will make absolutely no difference to the people that we speak to. And that's exactly what we see here. Right? Because Felix was afraid. But that afraidness led to absolutely nothing. He was still a wicked man. He he was greedy. You know, he would call Paul in again, he would chat, but actually he didn't really want to hear any more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just wanted a bit of a, a bribe so he could be let free. And on top of that, even though he knew that Paul was innocent, he kept him in jail for two more years because he wanted political favors from the Jews. So not only was Felix a wicked, a cruel, oppressive, lustful man, he was greedy for bribes and he let an innocent man rot in prison for two years because he wanted political favors from the Jews. The gospel of Jesus Christ didn't really make any impact on him at all. But that's okay, because Paul had a clear conscience before God. Now we then come to the last section, uh, 25 onwards. And what happens is there's a passage of time, and Felix is uh, actually called back to Rome. Like I told you, there was some investigation against Felix. The people were very angry with him. There were lots of accusations of corruptibility, or violence, wickedness. And uh, if you want to look it up, you can look up Felix on Wikipedia as well. Uh, he was protected because he had a, a good relative who was a good friend of the emperor, who kind of like bailed him out, right? But there was another governor, this time Festus. Uh, Festus was supposed to be a better governor than Felix. So here Festus found Paul festering in jail, okay? And he wanted to see what he was going to do with, uh, with Paul. Right, well, what was the case against Paul? You know, he wanted to come to, up to speed with what was happening. So he called King Agrippa to come to help him. Because King Agrippa was like, so Festus was the Roman governor appointed by the Romans. Festus was like the puppet uh, king of the Jews. He wasn't of the line of King David. He was kind of like, you can read up history again. He was married to some people who were politically powerful, so somehow he became a puppet king over the Jews. So King Agrippa was called by Festus to come to help him understand what was happening with this Paul. What was the situation? 
Now, when we hear of King Agrippa, we shouldn't think that, oh, okay, finally, we have some guy here who's like a Jewish expert who's going to come and give uh, a helpful consulting advice about the problem of Paul. Because if you look at this, oh, that's what he looks like. If you look at the, the line of King Agrippa, he's actually from the line of Herod the Great. Okay, so Herod the Great, first click. Hey, is he up there? There's a circle there. Ah, great. So, if you remember, Herod the Great was the guy who tried to kill all the babies around the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem in order to get rid of another potential king. Do you remember that? Okay? And then uh, his uncle, Agrippa and Herodias, do you remember who Herodias was? She was the lady who, who was very angry at John the Baptist for saying that John, uh, for, for John the Baptist saying that she shouldn't be marrying her brother or her relative. So she organized for her daughter to dance, you know, very sexy dance. And then, you know, the king said, anything you want, I can give you. And then she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist was beheaded. So when you hear King Agrippa, he comes from a line, a family line of people who have not shown themselves in any way to be open to God or God's messengers or God's people. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas and his aunt, or also Agrippa and Herodias, well, they were all these sort of uh, dastardly people. So anyway, you can imagine the scene, King Agrippa and his wife, his queen, come in with all their power and pomp, pomp and prestige. The military officials come in. You've got the leading men of the city. Then you've got the new Roman governor, Festus. And before them is poor little Paul in his prison clothes. I don't think they wear orange then. Who knows what color prison clothes they wear, right? And, uh, you know, he's in chains. And Paul is asked to give his defense. So Paul's first defense, as he speaks now, it's a bit frustrating, right? Can you imagine every couple of years you've got to start all over again and give your defense to different sorts of people, right? Okay, so here now he has to give it over again. And this time he says, look, I was a Pharisee. I lived as a Pharisee. I was a, very, I was a Pharisee from a very young age. And the Pharisees were very disciplined in terms of their living in Judaism. They were very knowledgeable in God's word. And he said, look, I was a Pharisee from when I was born. And based on my background as a Pharisee, I know that the hope based on the promises of God, the hope that the twelve tribes had, the hope that was given on the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of Israel, was that God raises the dead. So in verse 8, he says, um, in, chapter, yep, in chapter 26, verse 8, Why then should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead. Because the Pharisees believe in the resurrection from the dead. That is one of their chief doctrines. Right? That's what the Pharisees believe. And that's why Paul says, why, if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, can you not believe 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that was the main problem that the Pharisees had against Paul. So in Acts chapter 25, next slide, remember, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. This is Festus speaking, right? Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. So what Paul was saying is, look, as a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee, you were a Pharisee, and we believed in resurrection of the dead. So why can you not believe that Jesus Christ raised from the dead? And how did Paul know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Well, Paul was a fanatical persecutor of Christians. He chased them from city to city to city. He put them to death. He had them flogged. He had them whipped. That's what it means when it says they were punished. But then look at what happened in verse 12 to 18. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, King Agrippa. As I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. So what changed for Paul was that he heard and saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. He saw the light from heaven. So when we understand this passage, Jesus is speaking from heaven. And that means that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He was God. And what did this voice from heaven say? Why do you persecute me? That means as you persecute other Christians, as you persecute the church, you're actually persecuting Jesus Christ instead, himself. And he says it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now what is a goat? So if you look up here on this slide, this is a goat, right? It's um, this stick which is used to poke uh, the animals, especially so that, you know, because you know the animal doesn't really want to plow your field, right? He's not like a motor engine where you turn it on and he moves. He just kind of prefers to stay, stay still. So you've got to poke them with these sharp sticks. Okay, so the next slide, you can see it here. Right, you poke this, the animals. I guess it's not very humane, right? But guess what they used to do? So he's saying, look, why do you want to kick against the stick? Because when you kick against the stick, what happens? You end up getting hurt. Now, actually in the ancient world, this was like a proverbial saying, and it was often used when talking about going against the will of God. So what Jesus is actually saying, and I never realized this before until I studied it a bit more for this sermon, but when 
when, when Jesus says, why do you kick against the goals? He's saying, why are you kicking out against God? Because when you kick out against God, who gets hurt? God or you? It's you who gets hurt. And that's what he's saying to Paul. He's saying, why are you kicking out against God? Because you're resisting God and you are getting hurt instead. So Paul is then commissioned by Jesus, not as a persecutor, but as a witness and a servant. He's to go around testifying to what happened that day and what continues to happen in this life. To turn people from darkness to light, from Satan to God to receive forgiveness of sins and to be sanctified in the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in his defense, is saying, look, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is why I am being persecuted. It is because of the resurrection of this man who I have seen and heard again, for whom I am in jail for. And then in verse 22 to verse 27, he then goes on to try to evangelize again. Right? He goes into the offense. So in verse 22, he says, But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was done. It was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. And as they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Now here as we look at this passage, you see that Paul is actually fundamentally saying two things. He's saying, look, he's saying to the king Agrippa, who is Jewish, Do you believe in the prophets? If you believe in the prophets, then you must believe that the Christ must suffer, and the Christ will then rise again to then bring resurrection into this world. Now that's why we read in our responsive reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah was one of the prophets, and that's exactly what he says. He says that the Christ must suffer, and then the Christ will rise from the dead. And that's what we just read together responsively. right? He says, surely he... Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the prophets clearly say that the Christ will suffer. But then the prophets also say very clearly that he will rise again. So in verse 11, next slide, he said, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So it's very clear from the prophets that the Christ will come, he will suffer for the sake of people, not because he was sinful, and he will rise again. But more importantly for Paul, is in verse 25 and 27, it is reasonable and it is true that this has happened to the person of Jesus Christ. Because this has not been done in a corner. So as we've been reading through uh, the Bible, we know that Jesus' resurrection was witnessed by the apostles. They ate and drank with him. They touched him. He was witnessed by hundreds of people. And they saw him after he rose from the dead. And here Paul says that it was so widespread, the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence, eyewitness testimony of it, that even King Agrippa in his royal palace would have known about the resurrection of Jesus. Now I was hearing a sermon uh, not too long ago which said, if you say that you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you need to give me a reason why not. It's not good enough to say, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because I've never seen anybody being resurrected before. It's not good enough to say I don't, be, I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because I don't believe in the resurrection. Because what you're basically saying is I have a worldview which rules up the resurrection, which rules out the supernatural, and therefore, even though I have evidence which comes to me, which suggests that there is a resurrection and there is a resurrection for Jesus Christ. I will ignore it because it doesn't fit into my presuppositions or my worldview. It's like a bad scientist, right? Because I already have a theory, but then I get other evidence which disputes my theory. I will ignore that evidence because my theory is already fixed in my mind. Or it's like a bad judge because I've already got the verdict in my mind. So because I've got this verdict... I refuse to see other evidence which might contradict the verdict I've already decided on. But you notice, that's exactly what happens here, right? Just as it happens with many people in this world. When Paul starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for Governor Festus, for King Agrippa and his queen, they refuse to take that evidence into consideration. What do they do? They get up and they leave. Right? You notice there's no more conversation. It's over. But because the prophets say there will be a resurrection because of what is true and reasonable and the eyewitness testimony, Paul and for us, we know the resurrection of the dead will happen because Jesus Christ has rose from the dead. So I was reading in the Straits Times uh, last week uh, that there was a, a really good initiative in Europe where there are lots of refugee camps where people from Africa go up into the European Union and they are waiting 
to be resettled as refugees in Europe. You know, all the different countries, France, Germany, uh, no more England in the future, but other places, right? But as they wait in these refugee camps, they can wait for an indefinite period because no one knows where they will go. No one knows what will happen to them. So apparently what they've been setting up for them are these mobile libraries. Right? So they bring these books, often their own languages, and they bring it to the refugees and the refugees get to read as they wait for whichever country uh, will settle them down. And uh, they interviewed one man, this guy was saying, oh, you know, he really loves reading Agatha Christie and things like that. And I was thinking, you know, the conditions in these refugee camps are really bad, right? They're lonely, the housing is not very good, the food is very boring, uh, there's, you know, it's very overcrowded. But they, know, they, they never ever consider going back to their home country. Because back in their home country, there's violence, there's war, there's injustice, there's persecution, there's famine. Now I think that for us as Christians, in many ways, uh, we are like those refugees. Right? Uh, we may not be having the best situation in the world that we live in, but we will not go back to being non-Christian because we know that there is a much better future waiting for us. And we've got to keep persevering and keep pressing on because we know that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there will be a resurrection of the dead. There will be a resurrection of the righteous who are in Christ. And there will be a resurrection of the wicked. And there will be an eternity for the wicked and the righteous. And therefore, whenever we're tempted to give up on Christ, or to stop being Christian, or maybe think the world is too difficult, or being Christian is too hard, then that's what keeps us going, right? It is because we know that there is a resurrection. We know that there is future reality. And there's no point going back. Because going back is worse than the future of the resurrection of the righteous. And that resurrection is something that we know is true because it conforms to what the prophets say. It conforms to what the true and reasonable evidence is of the resurrection of Jesus. So I hope that as we look at today's passage, it is an encouragement for us, these truths, to keep going on as Christians, even when times are tough. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we see the testimony of Paul through these separate trials and difficulties, that we too will embrace the light, that we too will continue to press on in you, knowing the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, knowing the reality of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. That you will continue to help us to keep pressing on, to persevere, even when times are difficult. Even when we feel the world pressing in against us. For we know that there will be a resurrection because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.